Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going great, Natalie. Uh, I am kind of in a makeshift recording studio at the local library where I live. Um, So apologies if there's any kind of differences in the quality of sound, but our producer's going to, he's going to do his magic on this one. But um, Steve's does (laughs) behind-the-scenes magic to, to... our audio all the time uh listeners please please thank him for us sounding anywhere remotely good (laughs) exactly but um it's been an eventful few days i would say um with a lot of supreme court news we got more opinions this week although perhaps not as many as some were anticipating um i remember we had been talking recently about how there were 33 opinions left to go as of um today on thursday as we record there's 29 remaining. Uh, There were, I guess, four opinions, three on Monday, one on Wednesday. So they're chugging along, but fairly slowly. I'm getting real like 11th hour procrastination vibes from the Supreme Court these days, I'll be honest. Um, Right. I mean, I feel like there's going to be that big old push right at the end of like June where we're going to get like 20 opinions. I'm sure. I'm sure. And I think it just has to do with everything that's going on around the Supreme Court. We've talked recently, I guess last week, um, you weren't here, Natalie, but Amber and I had a nice discussion about the the investigation into uh, the leaked draft opinion in the Dobbs abortion case. And then just yesterday, we had some, frankly, terrifying news about a man that has been charged with attempted murder of Justice Brett Kavanaugh. So why don't we kind of just break down the news there? Um, This was first reported by the Washington Post yesterday morning um, that uh, police had arrested a man with a weapon outside of Justice Kavanaugh's home in suburban Maryland. And we eventually got some more details when a criminal complaint was filed in Maryland Federal District Court against 26-year-old California resident Nicholas John Roski, um, who got out of a cab in front of Justice Kavanaugh's home around 1 in the morning, according to an affidavit from an FBI agent. Um, he was... He exits the cab um, around 1 in the morning. As I say, he's dressed in black. He has a backpack on and a suitcase. Uh, Upon seeing two deputy U.S. marshals there, he walked down the street and dialed 911, at which time he reports to the dispatcher he's having suicidal thoughts and had come there to kill Justice Brett Kavanaugh. So he's quickly arrested by Montgomery County Police. They find him to be in possession of a handgun, I believe it was a Glock 17, uh, a knife, kidnapping materials like zip ties and duct tape, among other things. Um, At the police station where he's taken in Bethesda, uh, the the suspect, Roski, tells a detective that he was angered by the leaked draft abortion ruling overturning Roe versus Wade, as well as the recent mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas. He says Kavanaugh would vote to loosen gun laws, and he wanted to give his life purpose by killing him. So he's since been charged with attempted murder in Maryland federal court. He had his initial appearance before a U.S. magistrate judge on Wednesday afternoon. So this is obviously a terrifying development here, and it uh, I think it's a perfect kind of uh, example of the incredibly tense rhetoric surrounding the Supreme Court where you have people that have essentially been radicalized and are acting and uh, trying to carry out violent uh, attempts against the lives of the individual justices themselves. 
Yeah, terrifying indeed. And, you know, Jimmy, I know you and I have talked off air um, about how this is just the, a kind of threat that we've not really seen before, at least not in recent history. Look, we know the justices, um, you know, on the Supreme Court get threats all the time um, from all corners and that, you know, some are made public, some are not. But we've never seen something like this, you know, come straight to the backyard of Justice Kavanaugh's home um, and, and and just so close and so, you know, close to happening, like, goodness, um, you know, and, and at least not in recent history. That's right. I think the personal security of the justices has become a top concern in recent weeks. You have uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland having met last month with the U.S. Marshal Service about ramping up uh, security for the individual justices, including, uh, you know, round-the-clock basically details at their private residences, which is what we saw, um, you know, the two deputy marshals there that were able to kind of ward off this would-be attacker. Um, And even in response to this news, we had some kind of political statements from some Republican members of Congress basically urging House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat, to take up uh, legislation recently passed by the Senate that would expand security resources for the individual justices. So this will continue to be probably a top priority of these various law enforcement agencies as well as lawmakers on Capitol Hill. But Natalie, why don't we turn to the actual work of the court, slow as it is um, lately. But uh, as I said earlier, we had four opinions, um, including three on Monday, and one of which we've talked about on the show before. So this might be kind of a weird segue out of a, out of a fairly, um, you know, a morbid slash uh, uh, frightening topic such as attempted assassinations of U.S. justices. But we are going to pivot to what we've talked about before, which is arbitration. So there was a, uh, f- there was a case involving the Federal Arbitration Act that um, had to do with ramp airline supervisors. Is, do I have that right? You do, uh, and we've talked about this uh, this case actually before. Uh, for some listeners who might remember, uh, it was uh, involved ramp agents who load and unload cargo from from planes. And I know we had a whole discussion about, you know, whether they have a parallel j- job basically to stevedores who do this uh, on on cargo ships. Um, but yes, let's let's kind of start at the beginning on Monday in a case known as Southwest Airlines versus Saxon. The court handed down a fairly big win to employees of the airlines who had been looking to curb the company's use of mandatory arbitration clauses. Um, essentially, you know, the justices were looking at whether these employees, ramp agents, um, are engaged in foreign or interstate commerce and therefore under federal exempt under federal law from arbitration contracts. Or if they're like stevedores, who we, <laughs> we talked about, um, you know, kind of too far removed from interstate commerce, or at least according to some, you know, pre- pre- precedents has said so. Um, so what do we get? You know, what was the verdict uh, from the from the court on Monday? So uh, Monday's decision was a unanimous decision, um, although Justice Barrett was not involved because she had previously um, been on a circuit panel that had looked at this case. Um, And essentially, it was a significant win for workers um, in a term that is shaping up to be a bit anti-arbitration or at least (laughs) worker friendly. Um, (laughs) 
there's your headline right there front page because you know that is pretty rare but you're absolutely right that um the last arbitration case we talked about in the uh case of the taco bell worker where they ruled against the franchisee and basically said there weren't special carve outs for arbitration and that um that in that case the company had waived its right to exercise it's arbitration agreement by virtue of participating in the litigation for a while now. Um, so, Natalie, that I, that's totally a theme. Um, is there anything in there, in that opinion, that kind of follows that theme of, I guess, siding with the worker? I mean, what is it, just a coincidence, or is it um, anything in particular that you're noticing about the justices reaching these pro-worker decisions? So, in this case, um, you know, I, I will say, you know, Justice Thomas wrote the opinion, um, and as our senior transportation reporter, Lynch Chim, noted, you know, they took kind of a, a, a very textualist take on, uh-huh. you know, what it means to be engaged in interstate commerce here. Um, you know, and he was like, there's a whole digression into what engaged means, how it's defined in Webster's <laughs> and Black's Law. Um, but basically, you know, he's like, look, speaking plainly and speaking practically, these employees who physically load and unload cargo on and off planes that do travel in interstate commerce are engaged in the interstate transportation of goods, right? So that was like the big takeaway. Um, now, you know, I will say this was not an out and out win for the workers. It did reject um, an argument from Latrice Saxon, who was um, the lead uh, worker here in, in the case, um, to essentially say all airline workers are exempt, um, mm. you know, and there's, you know, question i think as to whether workers farther down the so-called channels here of interstate commerce um might qualify um now i have a question about that point is that just the court saying like that's not that issue is not presented in this case and so we're not going to get to that or is that saying you know we think it's just limited this interstate commerce exemption under the federal arbitration act is just limited to these ramps they said they were not touching basically on you know other classes of workers. Um, but look, this is a hit to transportation industry employers who are seeking to avoid big worker class actions and litigation by, you know, requiring mandatory arbitration in, in a lot of instances. Um, you know, this is uh, obviously has implications for other airlines, but also for workers in other industries, notably like truck drivers, um, maybe even rideshare drivers. I remember Uber and Lyft and um, other rideshare companies were very interested in this case and filed amicus, you know, briefs supporting Southwest Airlines' um, argument that you know only those who are like literally crossing state lines while they were transporting goods should be considered um, engaged in interstate commerce. I guess I have one question about this, and it's something that, like, I, I don't, I didn't pay close enough attention in this case to figure out. But Latrice Jackson, she's the ramp supervisor, so she, is she not directly involved in the loading, or does that did that factor in at all into the so case? So it factored in that as part of her job, she did at least sometimes actually go out and help with the actual moving of cargo in and out of planes. Um, she wasn't just directing, ju- okay. wasn't just supervising, you know, all the time, like, you know, telling A and B person to do this. Like, she was actually doing it herself, too, in certain instances. And okay. that played a factor. That makes sense, then. Uh, a, a supervisor uh, who, who does the work herself, we all love to see it. 
Um, but that's a fascinating case, Natalie. Why don't we turn to a ruling issued yesterday in the case Egbert versus Boole. I believe it's pronounced Boole. It could be Boole. I'm not exactly sure. But in a 6-3 to three ruling, the Supreme Court threw out a civil rights lawsuit from a Washington bed-and-breakfast owner claiming that a Border Patrol agent violated his Fourth Amendment rights when he entered his property without a warrant, threw him against a car, and on the ground causing him injuries in alleged violation of his rights against illegal search and seizure. Yeah, definitely one um, that we'd also been watching. Uh, So just, you know, what's the big takeaway here with the opinion this week? There's a pretty big takeaway here, and that is that the Supreme Court has basically provided close to blanket immunity to Border Patrol agents from these types of federal civil rights lawsuits, which are known as Bivens actions. We've talked about this issue um, before on the show, but just as a kind of refresh, Bivens was this 1971 case in which the Supreme Court says plaintiffs can sue federal law enforcement agents in their personal capacity for Fourth Amendment violations. Now, like a key distinction here is we often talk about like Section 1983 civil rights lawsuits. That is a civil rights law you know, passed in the 1800s that basically provides a mechanism to sue state officials in their personal capacity for civil rights violations. There is no um, kind of equivalent statute that provides this cause of action against these federal law enforcement uh, like agents, whether they're FBI agents, et cetera. Um, And so in this Bivens decision, as as by way of background here, Supreme Court holds in kind of a fractured ruling that the Fourth Amendment has an implied cause of action against these federal officials, basically opening up a new avenue for plaintiffs to sue them in federal court for Fourth Amendment violations. So that's kind of the general context. But as we've seen in recent years and again in Wednesday's decision, the Supreme Court has been limiting and limiting the, the, the context in which plaintiffs can bring these types of Bivens actions. So here, uh, the court basically refused to extend Bivens to the context of a Border Patrol search and says, in a nutshell, quote, permitting suit against a Border Patrol agent presents national security concerns that foreclose Bivens relief. So pretty big ruling here with potentially a lot of implications for you know huge swaths of the country um, in which Border Patrol has jurisdiction to execute these searches, whereas now um, there will no longer be any kind of real federal court relief for people that say that these searches were conducted in violation of their constitutional rights. Okay, so let's take a step back though. Um... Can you tell us a little bit more about kind of what happened in this case? All right. So this case, it's it's a it's kind of a fascinating fact pattern. Um, the the aforementioned uh, bed and breakfast proprietor that I mentioned, Robert Boole, he owns this establishment in Blaine, Washington, uh, near the Canadian border. And guess what it's called? It's called Smugglers Inn. <laughs> so according to police. This aptly named establishment was a notorious spot for illegal border crossings and drug trafficking. And, you know, they would, uh, according to law enforcement, um, this owner kind of, you know, would leave the back door open of his inn for people trying to cross the Canadian-U.S. border um, and come and go as they please. But at the same time, at the, sorry, you're going to say something, Natalie? I was just going to make a comment. If true, that is, uh, you know, 
takes hiding in plain sight to a whole next level. <laughs> I believe his the license plate on one of his cars was even smuggler, according to some court documents. So hiding in plain sight might be uh, the, the right way to put it. But in any event, um, he had also apparently helped federal agents identify and catch people sneaking across the border between the U.S. and Canada, even if at times he was also aiding and abetting them, uh, according to law enforcement. But anyway, this case centers around 2014. He's stopped by a Border Patrol agent um, named Eric Egbert, and uh, Bull tells him that a Turkish national is arriving later that day um, to his inn in a car driven by his employees who are picking up this Turkish national from the airport. Um, so Egbert wants to investigate and, and, and check this person out. And so seeing the employee's car arrive at the smugglers in Egbert goes in, enters the property uh, to investigate and question the guest. However, Bull at this point kind of stands in his way and demands either a warrant or a supervisor, at which point the Border Patrol agent allegedly pushes him up against the car and throws him to the ground, injuring him in a way that uh, uh, Bull says required medical treatment. Um, and then the Border Patrol kind of leaves after seeing that this Turkish guest was in the country legally and had his papers in order. But this is all to say that um, after he leaves, Bull com- kind of complains to, to the, the agent's supervisors, which leads to, in Bull's words, kind of a retaliatory campaign where he's then reported to the IRS for his tax return. So kind of a messy situation, but in any event, he files a lawsuit claiming that both his Fourth and First Amendment rights are violated and, uh, you know, kind of uh, purports to bring this under this Bivens cause of action established in the 1971 Supreme Court case. But um, the Supreme Court on Wednesday really throws a wrench in his plans to hold the agent here to account. Now, just kind of a point of clarification here. Um, the Part of the ruling actually was unanimous in that the even the liberal justices, uh, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer, agreed that basically Bull didn't have a leg to stand on when it came to his First Amendment uh, retaliation claims. But the court, when it came to his Fourth Amendment illegal search and seizure case, that's where kind of they fractured here. So, and that's where the Bivens claim sits in the the Fourth Amendment, right? Well, actually, he tried to use Bivens to bring that First Amendment claim as well, but um, even the liberal justices on the court said, "Well, this is like not a context that we're willing to extend Bivens to, so we're just going to cabinet to this Fourth Amendment claim." So that's kind of where the disagreement takes place. So. In his majority decision here, Justice Thomas basically makes it all but impossible to sue Border Patrol agents in federal court for illegal search and seizures under the court's uh, Bivens ruling. He says that you know legislative and executive branches, not the courts, should be taking the lead on national security matters, like how border agents conduct searches and, and seizures. And that's all to say that like even when it comes to Fourth Amendment Bivens claims, He's basically saying they can't apply to these Border Patrol agents because it involves matters of national security. Um, And he says that, you know, like this guy didn't have to pursue his claims in court since they already have an administrative grievance process. Now, the dissenters, uh, Sotomayor writes this dissent, joined by, as I say, Kagan and uh, Breyer, in which basically she says, okay, I'll grant you that, you know, this was a Border Patrol agent, but this is almost an identical context to the context in which the original Bivens case arose, in which it was just an FBI uh, search and seizure, um, pointing out that this happened on his property, on the curtilage of his property, with a federal law enforcement agent who did not have a warrant. And she says, quote, 
CBP agents are now absolutely immunized from liability in any Bivens action for damages, no matter how egregious the misconduct or resultant injury. That will preclude redress under Bivens for injuries resulting from constitutional violations by CBP's nearly 20,000 Border Patrol agents, including those engaged in ordinary law enforcement activities like traffic stops far removed from the border. Um, so, you know, you, you can see how this could possibly be a pretty pretty big ruling here. It's not entirely surprising, uh, given that the court has been unwilling to extend Bivens to like many different contexts over in recent years, but this is just further kind of uh, uh, constricting, narrowing, limiting, however you want to put it, um, this federal cause of action against U.S. law enforcement as opposed to state law enforcement. As you said, Jimmy, at the beginning of this this episode, definitely a big week. Um, I think that just wraps us up, though, um, at least for now. I'm sure we're going to have a lot more to talk about, or at least I kind of hope. <laughs> There's going to be more opinions to talk about next week. We'll see. Um, I know. If not, we're going to be here in August still recording uh, episodes, waiting oh on the goodness. last rulings. But yeah, it, <laughs> I, I have my doubts about whether the court will be able to wrap up by um, 4th of July weekend. Um, uh, but we shall see. Well, Jimmy, as always, thank you so much. Thank you, Natalie, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, our executive producer, Andrew McKinney, contributing reporters, Linda Kim and Mike LaSouza. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats, and for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks. Oh, and please write us a review. <laughs>